I don't know if you follow the network called the PBS Network. 2018, they did a series on a bunch of books, the 100 most popular books. They looked at the 100 best-selling novels. There were literary agents, there were authors, there's all of these people. They gathered together, and they did an eight-part series on these books. And one of the sessions on this series was on heroes. So they looked at all of these books, and they looked at the heroes of these books. Why are there heroes? The characteristics of heroes. What about the anti-heroes? All of these kind of things. And they came together in this particular series. They drew their attention to some of the characteristics of a hero. And I just want to read through what they found in studying all of these hundred books. So here's a couple of comments about heroes. A hero is who we all wish we were if we didn't have our own personal limitations. We'd like to believe there's a hero gene in all of us. One person said, I think... When we hear heroes or see them or read about them, we think about qualities that we wish we had, courage, strength, fortitude, and bravery. Another person said, reading about everyday heroes gives us hope and lets you know that you're not in this fight alone. Another person said, I think we aspire to everyday heroes because we wish to be them. In moments of great tragedy, we see people drawn to firefighters or emergency workers or to the people who went beyond their job. It says, they rushed in where angels dare to tread, our heroes. And one last comment is this, the hero lifts us. It redeems what we try to do. The hero provides us with an archetype that gives us direction. Let's go this way and we'll be okay. I like that last definition. The archetype points us, this is the direction that we need to go. In the midst of the life, in the midst of challenges, in the midst of difficulties in life, in the midst of the battle, we have the opportunity to look at people who've gone before us and say, you know, I want to go in that direction. Do you have a favorite Bible character? You've heard me say this over and over. Peter's one of my favorite Bible characters. In our adult class in the morning, we're studying Elijah. Why are we studying Elijah? Because Elijah lived in a really, really difficult time. He was called to confront a pagan king about the way that he was living. And and when we look at these people, Peter, Timothy, Epaphroditus, when we look at all of these people, we find characteristics of our lives that we see. Listen, I I, want to be like that person. How did they live this out? It's not a bunch of doctrine and theology. It's the way that they lived it out. That's why I I love reading biographies. Years ago, when... We were going through some mission stuff. I read about six or seven books about Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, all of those people who lost their lives when they went to the Aka Indians. And the reason is because I wanted to know what made them tick, what made them make those kinds of decisions, what drew them to do these kind of heroic acts. Because when we look at them, we learn from them. And I think that's what we see when we come to the Bible. And there's no doubt one of our heroes of the faith is a guy by the name of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, whose life was radically transformed on the road to Damascus, his life went from darkness into life, and he becomes a model, he becomes an archetype. He becomes one of our heroes of our faith because of the focus of his life, the very focus of his life. Now, people nowadays talk about, well, do you have a mission statement for your life? Or what's the purpose of your life? Or or if you were to reduce your life down to one or two things, what would it be? For Paul, the mission statement, the theme of his life is very, very simple, six words. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. That was the theme of his life, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, no matter where I would find myself, if I'm living in this world, it's going to be all about Jesus because I know that when I pass from this world, I'm going to immediately be in the presence of Jesus. So if I'm going to immediately be in the presence of Jesus, 
and the future, why not make that the focal point of my life, living for Jesus intimately day in and day out? And so what we have this morning in the book of Philippians, we have the opportunity to learn from one of our heroes, a guy who people saw his life, saw the things that he did. In other words, he wasn't just out there and he didn't know that the people that we're going to look at this morning, the people of Philippi, knew about Paul. They watched his life. They watched him, they watched him suffer in an incredible way. And he becomes this hero. He becomes this archetype that points people in the right direction. And I don't know about you and how you go about contending for the faith, or more specifically, contending for the gospel, the good news of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But I find myself at times maybe not as bold or courageous as I would like to be. If there were some issues in my life that I would want to confront, this would be one of them, that I would be a little bit bolder, articulate, courageous with the gospel message of Jesus. So Paul, in our text this morning, enabled us to see maybe some things that we can do, emulate, and looking to him and how we might be changed in contending for the gospel. You know, we're contending for all of those foundational truths that we've been going through the last couple of months uh, about the person of Jesus, uniqueness of the Bible, pain and suffering, the future. All of those things are foundation to our living. And now we come to the idea of contending for the faith, the gospel message of Jesus. So Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, I believe Paul invites us to contend for the faith by doing this. Understand your citizenship. Know your citizenship. Know who you are and how you were related to Jesus. So let me just read our text this morning, Philippians chapter 1. We love God's word. There's something important about us speaking God's word and affirming God's word together. Hear the word of the Lord. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that from God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but to also suffer for him. Since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Father, I thank you for the word of God. Father, I thank you for the way that the word of God transforms our lives. And Lord, we don't want to turn back. We don't want to run. We don't want to hide. Father, we have the power of Christ living inside of us. The resurrection power of Christ resides inside of us. And Father, I pray this morning that you'd open our minds and our hearts to know and understand what it would have for us and how we can leave here knowing that we can be bold and courageous for Jesus. Father, I thank you for the truth. I thank you for Paul. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Before we get to the text, let me just take just a minute or two to look at the broader context of where we're at. Paul is in prison. He's chained. He's probably in a prison in Rome. Most likely he's been there for about two years. And why is he in prison? Well, he's been in prison because he's basically appealed to the leaders. He's appealed to the religious leaders for what he's doing. He's going into synagogues. He's going to places. He's going into town telling people about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And some people don't like it. They don't like the fact that he's doing this. So he's appealed to Caesar. Listen, if you're going to throw me in prison, I'm going to appeal to Caesar. I'm going to go to Rome. I want to stand before Caesar, and I want to give an account for my life and tell him why we're doing it. So they're persecuting. Him. And what Paul has done in verses 1 through 11, he's basically just given an initial greeting. And he, he's affirmed the people of Philippi. He's affirmed these people. He said, listen, 
I can't tell you how proud I am of you. In the midst of pain and suffering, in, in the midst of me being chained, guess what's happening? People are actually being, being bold for Jesus. The message of Christ, life, death, burial, and resurrection. It's even reached the Caesar's household, the Praetorian Garter, hearing about Jesus. People aren't backing down. And that's how we begin in verses 1 through 11. And then verses 12 through 27, he said, listen, I know what's going on, and I know what's happening, but I want you to remember that we need to pray for each other. You need to pray for me. We need help in ministering and serving to each other in the body of Christ. And what he wants to do is he said, listen, I want you to be bold for your faith. I want you to stand for your faith. I want you to live righteously. I want you to live in such a way that your life will be a light in the midst of the darkness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the people are doing a great job, and he commends them for all of that. But Paul also knows he's a realist. He also knows, listen, I could die. If I'm going to appeal, there's, there's no doubt this idea that I could be executed. And whether I die or not, it doesn't really matter. Because if I die, I really want to do that because I want to go be with Jesus. But if I can't, if I need to stay around here, I know that people need to be discipled. People need to be encouraged. People need to be established in their faith. And whether I live or die, what I want to do is I just want to do it all for Jesus. So Paul's a realist. And he also knows that that maybe he's not going to be able to get back to see them. But whether he can get back to see them or not is not the point. The point is, listen, I want you to live righteous. I want you to live for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what he wants us to do. He says, listen, I'm going to give you a charge. If there is a big idea, if there is a blinking light telling us what we should do today and where we should go and how we should respond, it would be this. Understand your citizenship. Because when you understand your citizenship of what it means to be a citizen of heaven, you will be radically changed. And we as a church will radically be changed. And that's what he's going to talk about this morning. Number one, main thing, understand your citizenship. Look at verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, what's interesting is that some of you may have a version. At the beginning of this verse, it says only, only conduct yourself. And it's not the idea of whether Paul is going to be in prison or not be in prison, or he's going to face persecution or not, or I'm going to come or go. It's not the whatever. It actually means this. It means one thing. There's only one thing that really, really matters. Only. Only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, what Paul does is, listen, there is a sense of urgency. There is a sense of emotion that he's coming through. And he says he wants to push us in the right direction to see and understand that we need to be consistent in the way that we live our lives, keeping our eyes focused on the unique person of Jesus Christ. Only this is what's important. What is the only thing that's important? It's this, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ. And Paul's life was an autobiography to the people. They know and saw when he came into the city of Philippi, they know and saw his very life. He was an example to them. So what he does, he says, listen, what I want you to do is this. As a shepherd, I want you to live in the right way. And the right way is this. Conduct yourself or live as citizens. In other words, live as a citizen of what? Live out your citizenship that you are a citizen of heaven is what I want you to do. And what Paul is doing is, He's pointing to something that's really, really important to the people, and it's this. To the people of Philippi, their citizenship was really, really important. They're 840 miles away from Rome, but they didn't have the local authorities. They followed Roman authority. They followed Roman laws and customs and values. In other words, they were a mini Rome, 845 miles away from the big city, and they valued it all. There were Roman soldiers who had retired in this 
And, and they found the city of Philippi, this wonderful place for them to live out their citizenship. So the city of Philippi was absolutely important to these people. It's a Roman outpost and a Roman colony for all of these people to come and to gather. And we know that the people of Philippi deeply cared about the city. They cared immensely about the city of Philippi as a partner to Rome. And the reason we know that, because remember what happened when Paul went into the city of Philippi? There was no local area for him to meet, so he went outside and he began to meet with these praying worshipers, Lydia, and they began to found this church. When they founded this church, there was this wonderful outspringing of people gathering together. And eventually what happened is Paul began to be persecuted for his faith. He cast out the demon from this gal who was selling fortunes. And they didn't like that. So all of a sudden, the the city is in an uproar because of what Paul has done. And so we read in Acts chapter 16, the ramifications of what Paul had done. Listen to the people and how they responded when Paul came into Philippi. It says, they brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. Why was Paul thrown in prison? Because he was teaching, preaching, and speaking about Jesus. But do you remember specifically why he was thrown in prison? Because he cast the demon out of the scale who was walking around saying, these guys are servants of the Most High God. And it caused such a reaction of the people because all of a sudden in this city, in this culture, they had no way of making money. So when the message of Christ, when the message of the gospel confronted these people, it radically altered people's lives, not just their lives, but the way that people would live, the way that they would operate, the way that they would conduct themselves. It wasn't just the idea of turning to Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. It was turning to Jesus so that you will live and operate as a person in the city of Philippi in an entirely different way. Yes, there is Caesar, but there's also an allegiance to King Jesus and who he is and what he would have for our lives. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here. He's saying, listen, the people of Philippi, yeah, the people of Philippi is rightly related to Rome. And we love our Roman citizens and we embrace our Roman citizenship. And we love the fact that we're closely connected, even though we're 845 miles away. And Philippi is a leading city, and we embrace that. And what Paul is saying, listen, that is very, very true. But don't forget that ultimately you are a citizen of heaven, and you are to live your life, you are to conduct yourself in such a way that you embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ and the way that you do so in such a way that people's lives will be changed. doesn't matter what you do. If you're over here serving in this way, you're still a citizen of heaven. I'm a student, but I'm a citizen of heaven. And I'm employed in this business, and I'm still a citizen of heaven. And I'm doing something over here, but I'm still a resident, a citizen of heaven. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. And notice what he says. I want you to walk in a manner worthy. It doesn't matter where you're at. You're still a citizen of heaven. To walk in a manner worthy means this. There's this idea of a balance. When it talks about worthy, there's this balance. Is my life on the same balance worthy of who Jesus is? Am I, the way that I'm living my life, balance out to who Jesus is and what he would have in my life? Is there this right balance of my life? Am I living in such a way that my life as a citizen of heaven points ultimately to the picture of who Jesus is and what he would have for us? And the way that we live as citizens is radically important because people are looking at us and they're watching us, just like the people of Philippi watched and saw how Paul operated when he came into the city and how he was stoned. 
Paul wrote something incredibly powerful in 2 Corinthians in chapter 3. Notice these verses and the power of these verses in the presence of Christians to other people. He says this. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is defending his apostleship. He says, listen, do I need to write a letter to you defending my apostleship? Notice how he defends the fact of his calling and his apostleship. Notice what he writes. He says this. You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You see what he's saying? You people at Corinth, you are the letter of Christ. You are the examples. You are the ones who goes forth. And as Christ has radically changed you on the inside, as he has transformed your life, you become that letter, that picture of Jesus to other people and the way that you would live. You don't need us to write a letter. You go out and be who you are because of what Jesus has done in your life. Your life has radically been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying is, listen, understand that your citizenship means that you're to live in a way that's radically different in our day and age and our culture. I'm a citizen of St. Louis or a citizen of St. Charles. And I I live in a community and I do all of these things. But ultimately, I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm a resident of heaven. And because Christ has transformed my life here, I go back as a light in the midst of darkness. And I go back to all of those places. I go back to my school. And I go back to my neighborhood, and I go back to my business, and I go back to all of those places. I go back to all of those places where I'm residing as a citizen of heaven, and I become a transforming agent. That's what happened in the book of Acts in the city of Philippi. They were radically changed because of the way that this gal and this person did business. And they didn't like that their business was being threatened. You're taking away the fact that we can make money is what he's talking about. And that's what happens when the resident of heaven comes in and becomes a resident of somewhere else. See that you are that letter of light to other people in the midst of darkness. We are these transforming agents because we're citizens and we need to conduct ourselves in a right way. So how should we live? What should we do? How should we operate? Paul is going to give us three principles to live out that citizenship. Number one, verse 27, stand firm together. Look at verse 27 again. He says, Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my presence, I know that you stand firm in one spirit. Now, Paul is saying, listen, I may come to you, but I may not come to you. But the spiritual reality of your life should not be dependent upon me. It should be on the fact that you, people in Philippi, are of one spirit. In other words, you're operating as people in the body of Christ. You shouldn't be looking to me. Ultimately, you should be looking to Jesus. But you should be standing firm together as a community of faith so that we can be this united front. And notice when he says stand firm, it has this idea of a defensive posture. It has the idea that there are certain things in our faith, there are certain things in our foundation of Jesus, that they're defensive. Listen, not everybody's going to agree with what you believe about being a citizen of heaven. Moral issues are very, very different over here than they are over there. What you believe about morality, what you believe about the sanctity of life, what you believe about heaven and hell, what you believe about all of those things, are entirely different, and not everybody welcomes those kinds of teachings. They may not even welcome your business ethics, 
But what Paul is reminding us is this, that we need to stand firm. It has this idea of we are part of something bigger. It's war terminology. There's these soldiers, and all of these soldiers are standing side by side. It's the idea, on the football team, you have the line of scrimmage, and what are they? They're all together. They're not spread out. In soccer, they do this thing like a kick everyone, a penalty kick or something like that. And a lot of times they all line up shoulder to shoulder because it's a defensive posture. And it says, what I want you to do is I want you to stand firm with your feet and plant it on the ground so that when the difficulties and challenges come up to us, what can we do? We can hold our ground. Let me ask, do you have enough understanding of our faith, the core beliefs, that when people come to you and talk to you that you can articulate what our faith is all about? Do you have that knowledge and that understanding? Are we continuing to grow in the grace and knowledge in the midst of all of the challenges that we see going on around us? Or are we shrinking back from our culture saying, well, you know what, I'm just going to let it go. What Paul is reminding us, there's a defensive posture to our faith that we need to know. We're not going to know all the answers. I don't have all the answers. But do we know enough to be able to give a defense, First Peter, give a defense for why we believe what we believe? That's what it means to be a citizen of heaven. That's what it means because we've been radically changed. So number one, he talks about standing firm. Second thing he talks about is this. We need to fight with each other. We need to struggle with each other. We need to battle with each other. Not against each other, but with each other. Look at verse 27 again. He talks about contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. If standing firm is a defensive position, then an offensive position would be this, contending for the faith. It means this, that I'm going to stand side by side. I'm a lock arm, stand by side with somebody else. And what I'm going to do is we're going to articulate well the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to stand with all of my people, and what we are going to do together, we're going to contend, we're going to fight, we're going to struggle for the gospel. What's interesting is Paul uses the same word in chapter 4, and he mentions Euodia, Syntyche, and this other person. And you go back and look at chapter 4. He says, listen, these people have contended. They've contended by my side for the gospel, but they've done it like this. They've done it as individuals. And now they're warring against each other. What Paul is saying, listen, I want you to struggle together as a church family. What we need to do is we need to stand firm together, and we need to fight together as a church family in order for us to be able to help each other become citizens. Listen, Paul was so concerned about unity. He was so concerned about the idea of fighting together that what he does is 16 times in this letter, he takes a word and he adds a prefix to it, soon to it. And when you add the prefix soon to one of these Greek words, all of a sudden it takes it from being an individual understanding to a community understanding of what we are doing. So we don't contend individually, we contend corporately as a body for the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a principle of working together, locking arms. I'm not the enemy and you're not the enemy. The enemy is out there and we have a common message of wanting to take the message of Jesus out. But we've got to stand firm. We've got to lock arms together. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, remember the book of Nehemiah? Remember what happens? Nehemiah's got this great cush job. Man, he's a wine tester. And all of a sudden, he gets this report. He's like, oh, man, see, the, the walls around Jerusalem, are, they're bad. He gets this report, and, and God works in his life. God gives him favor, and he's able to go back and survey the city of Jerusalem. And what he understands is the people in Jerusalem, they're fearful. 
Why are they fearful? Because there's enemies out there. And what Nehemiah does is he goes to the Lord, and the Lord gives him favor. And then he says, okay, here's the plan. This is what I'm going to do. Nehemiah chapter 3. Okay, I want you guys to come over here, and I want you to stand right here. And then I want you over here, and then I want you 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 here. I want you to stand side by side together, lock arms. And what we're going to do is we're not only going to look out for the enemy, but we're going to look out for each other, and we're going to rebuild this wall. And that's exactly what happens. And in 52 days, they got that wall built in the midst of the enemies, in the midst of people coming to them and saying, you shouldn't be doing these kinds of things. And we have this common picture of them gathering together next to each other in the midst of maybe being frightened, in the midst of being uneasy about what to do. And maybe one person can't do it over here, but collectively together. And that's the picture of them. Nehemiah chapter 3, coming together, contending together, standing as a force so that they can do something mighty and powerful. You and I have the incredible privilege of locking arms with people, and you never know what you can do to help another person in the fight for our faith. We need each other in the body of Christ. So I came across this illustration, and I thought it was just a wonderful illustration for how it points to our need for each other and our need to help each other. Evidently, there's this gal by the name of Antonia Bundy, and she was a dispatcher, and people would call in uh, 911, and she would dispatch people. So one day she's doing her job. And by the way, I got this information from the TV station that found out what happened, did a report on her. So she's sitting there one day, she's doing her job, and she gets this call. And she recognized that there was something different about this caller. And uh, this is what she says. She had a bad day at school, she asked the young boy on the line. Yeah, I just called to tell you that. Now, nine times out of ten, such an admission might be met with a scolding for wasting police resources. But for Bundy, something seemed different enough for her to take a different tact. When he told me he was having a bad day, I asked him what was troubling him, and he told me he had homework. Bundy explained to a local TV station. At that point, I was able to determine that was more of a, I need help with homework than an actual emergency. Fortunately, Bundy was cheerfully up to the task. I've always been good at work. All the way through high school, I enjoyed it. So it was something I was very happy to be able to help him with. Bundy walked him through the arithmetic, helping him with the problem, seeing as it a nice break in her busy day. As it turns out, her decision not to scold the child paid off as he seemed to be aware that his problem did not qualify as an actual emergency. He says, I'm sorry for calling you, but he said, but I really needed your help. And this is what Bundy's response was. You're fine. We're always here to help. 911 is there. Why? You call them because you need help. Isn't that true in the body of Christ when we stand firm together, when we lock arms? Isn't that true where we should be in the body of Christ? I need help, you need help, of us coming together. If we can't come together in the family of God and help each other, I don't know where else we can go. You know, there's that spiritual element of our lives, knowing who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And what we're called to do is to stand firm and lock arms together in the midst of the fight. Hebrews chapter 10 gives us a beautiful description of what this looks like. Notice what is written here. It says this. Remember those earlier days after you received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were treated. 
That's the idea of us contending for the faith. We're standing firm with a defensive posture. We're contending with the faith in this offensive weapon that we have. And we're gathering together and we're do this because of our love and care for one another. Because we recognize that we're citizens of a different region, of a different place. We're ultimately citizens of heaven. And what else are we to do? Stand firm, contend. Notice what he says in verse 28. Live boldly. If I could pray one prayer, we pray a lot of prayers. If there was one overarching prayer for me, that I would live boldly. I need to live more boldly. Notice what he writes. He says, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. That means there are people that will oppose us. As we go out and we talk to people, we realize that there's opposition out there. People are going to oppose us. It says, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them. What is a sign to them? The fact that you're not frightened. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed and that you will be saved, and that, and that is by God. The church of Philippi began in the midst of pain and suffering. Paul came in. This lady was changed. His lives were changed. And they threw him in prison. They saw all of this stuff going on. They witnessed all of this. And what Paul is saying, listen, don't be frightened. The idea of frightened is this. This is the only time that word is used in the Bible, in the New Testament. But they find this word in Greek words, and it means this, this idea of a horse being startled. Don't be like a horse being startled. Don't be frightened that way. Why? Because there's an element of our faith where Jesus said, you're going to face it. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. So when you and I choose to make a stand for Jesus and speak about the claims of Jesus, we're going to face opposition for what we say. We need to expect that, and we don't have to be frightened by that. Because we know that that's a part of the issue of where we're, it's part of where we find ourselves in it. When I take a stand, when you and I take a stand in that way, this becomes a sign. In what way? In what way does our not being frightened point as a sign? Because all of a sudden you have this idea of knowing where people stand and what they think and what they believe. As I go about my life, as we go about our life, as we tell people about Jesus and they hear about what we believe and they don't like what we say, all of a sudden becomes this dividing wall, if you will. You're either for Jesus or you're against him. You can't be neutral. You can't be on the wall. And your faith, your strength, your confidence, your boldness becomes a sign that you're going to be saved and they're going to be destroyed. That ultimately is the work of God. That's what he's saying here. Ultimately, it's the work of God. Remember when we talked just a few minutes ago about Nehemiah and what happened and how they rebuilt that wall in a matter of 52 days? You want to know what happens in the response of the people? Nehemiah, chapter 6, verse 16. This is what happened to the enemies around them when they saw what God had done in a matter of 52 days, as they stood firm together, as they hung on together. Nehemiah, chapter 6, verse 16 says this. When all of our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and they lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Listen, no one can stand against God. No one can stand against Jesus. You and I stand on the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We stand on the truth of God's word. We stand on the foundation of what he's done. Jesus ultimately has conquered death. And what God invites us to do is to be that citizen, be that kind of person that walks around with their eyes on Jesus, standing firm, contending for the faith, living boldly and righteously for who he is.
That's what he would have us to do. That's the way that Paul would have us to do. Ultimately, why are we to do this? Because of what happens in verse 29 and 30. You and I have been given a grace, and it's a grace to suffer. Look at verse 29. Why do we live as citizens? Why do we stand firm? Why do we contend? Why do we live with boldness and courage? Verse 29 says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. He's referring to his imprisonment. Paul is in chains. He's been in chains. He's going to, hopefully one day, he's going to go before Caesar and, and give a defense before Caesar. He knows what's happening. And the people of Philippi, they saw what happened in his life. They saw what happened when he came into Philippi. They saw that he was beaten. They thought he was thrown in jail. They saw all of this. It was fresh on their mind. They saw that he had suffered. And what he's saying is, it has been granted to you. It actually means this. It's a grace to suffer for Jesus. We don't like that. I don't think any of us are standing going, I want to suffer for Jesus. I want to be a martyr for Jesus. I don't know that there's a lot of people out there. But what he's saying, listen, it's been granted you. It's a grace given to you to be able to suffer. Jesus suffered in this way, and it's a grace to suffer for Jesus. And, and if you suffer this way, First Peter talks about the spirit of God and glory will rest upon you. In other words, in our own strength, we will not be able to bear that up. But God will give us the strength through the spirit of God who lives inside of us. Paul knew upon his conversion that he was going to suffer many things. Let me show you how much he must suffer for my sake. The Bible over and over talks about how we will suffer for our faith. And maybe the way that we're bold, maybe the way that we are citizens, and maybe the way that we suffer becomes a testimony to an unbelieving world. How did Paul suffer in Philippi? Remember when he was in prison? They're singing hymns. Paul and Silas, they've been beaten. And the text says that they're singing hymns. And all of the prisoners are watching them. And all of a sudden, God opens the doors and they're going to run. And Paul says, don't run. We're right here. We're not going anywhere. And what happens? That jailer's life becomes transformed because of what he saw and how he experienced something. Acts chapter 14, verse 22 says this, but we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. The reality is we will suffer. And Paul talks about this being a grace to suffer. Not only has it been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. So let me just close this by way of application. Let me see if I can close this and wrap this text together. When you think about your life, and you think about the people who have impacted your life in the most radical way, doesn't your mind go to people who have been faithful throughout the long haul? 5, 10, 15 years, they have stood firm in the faith. They have contended for the faith. They have marched together. Aren't those the kind of people that we want to emulate and look to in our lives? The second thing is this. Isn't it a, a privilege to work alongside of people and to partner with people, to stand firm with other people, and to lock arms with other people, and to know that maybe this person will help you? Isn't it nice to know that we have a place to come and to struggle in life together in the highs and lows of life? When your world is crashing down and you don't know what to do, you don't know where to go. Isn't it nice to know that we're locking arms trying to help each other in the family of God? That's the second application. 
And the last application is this. When you see somebody suffer and they bear up under pain and suffering, doesn't that give you hope? Doesn't that give you hope? I remember when Pastor Bob was here. He went from being able to to walk around and do things to death real quickly. And I watched him die. And I remember thinking to myself when he was going through this, that, you know what, Lord, you're teaching me about death, and you're teaching me how to die, and watching Bob and the way that he embraced it and the things that he did. And I think when we see people struggle in life, Lois Lanham, we see people and we see their faith, that becomes a, a marker to us, and it becomes a place for us to look. We are not citizens of just St. John or St. Charles or whatever the saint you live in. Yeah, that's your physical place to live. But your citizenship is in heaven. And the text actually says, we're waiting for a savior from there. But I'm waiting, anticipating, longing for the time when the, when the savior is going to come. And my eyes and my thoughts and my focus are on him. So let's stand firm together. Let's contend together. And let's be bold together for Jesus. Listen, I don't know how to sit you today. If you can pray for one thing for me this next year, ask God to give me boldness. Colossians 4 says this, pray that God would open a door for us to speak the mystery of Christ. He's asking the people to pray for them. The Colossae, pray that God would open a door. Pray for open doors for me to be able to speak the mystery of Christ. Pray that God would open doors for us to speak the mystery of who Jesus is. Father, the song we sang, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. Father, we thank you for the Spirit of God. We thank you for what you've done inside of us, and we want to live for you. We want to walk with you. Father, we recognize the beauty of our dual citizenship, that you've left us on this world to be a light in the midst of darkness. And Father, I pray that we keep our minds and our hearts focused on you, our eyes on you. Father, I do pray that you would allow us to be bold, Father, help us to continue to encourage one another, to build up one another. Father, to help each other. Father, thank you that we are a family. Thank you that we have brothers and sisters in Christ that we can depend upon. And Father, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.